Uh, why don't we get started? Hello to everybody. It's really a pleasure to have some people in the room. Um, last week was the first Friday in a year that we had actually had people in the house who who didn't like have to come to the lecture because there are students here. Um, so people actually come from the outside of their own free will. It's just wonderful to see you. Um, so hello to all of you out there as well, uh, however many people are tuning in. Um, <clears throat> this is a bit of a, um, I'm not very experienced in doing the whole Zoom thing and coordinating questions, but there will be a discussion time at the end. And <clears throat> um, if all goes well, you will be able to just voice your questions audibly through the um, through Zoom. But uh, why don't we get started? So this is the uh, second lecture of our term. And just to give you a heads up about next week, um, a friend of ours from our church who we've known for a number of years, Dr. Brandon Unruh, he's a psychiatrist. Um, and he's doing a, a lecture for us I'm really looking forward to. It's, it's called it's on the topic of anxiety, which I think is something that um, is, is as relevant as it ever was. <clears throat> Fitting a frame around our fears what about when psychiatry and psychotherapy cannot help? So uh, please do come to that or tune in to that next Friday night, same time. So uh, tonight we'll be talking about uh, the fall, the doctrine of the fall as good news. Hopefully that my title will make sense in a few minutes. Um, I'm gonna start by asking you to imagine a scenario. Hopefully you can imagine this and it's not something that's actually happened to you recently, but um, let's say you haven't been feeling well for a few months and you've been having strange aches and pains. You've not been able to sleep well, you've lost your appetite, you feel lethargic. It's come on slowly, so at first you could sort of ignore it, but it's become impossible to ignore. You have to adopt more rigorous methods of denial. <laughs> so you tell yourself that it's just what you should expect as you get older. It's the new normal and you should get used to it. But one day you feel so bad, you give up pretending and something is clearly wrong with your body. You don't know what it is. Problem is you hate going to the doctor. It's a source of great anxiety for you. Ever since you were a kid and your parents uh, took you to the doctor's office and promised you, they lied to you that you weren't getting any shots that day. <laughs> and then it turns out you had to have the whole round of inoculations and everything, measles, mumps, rubella, tetanus. Ever since that day, you've associated going to the doctors with bad and surprising news. So the very thought makes you sweat. You'd rather not think about it. You'd rather tell yourself that everything is okay. But you have to do something. So you finally make an appointment with the doctor and she asks you a lot of questions, uh, examines you, does a bunch of blood tests. A week later, you get a call from the doctor with a diagnosis. It turns out you have 
I'm not going to tell you what it is. It's just, just this is a fictional uh, imaginary. <laughs> um, but you have you uh, you have a diagnosis now, and it's not good news. It's not the worst news, but it's not good news. You feel scared. You have a lot of questions about the treatment, what it will look like, what it will entail. Uh, but over the next few days, you realize that you're experiencing a different kind of anxiety than you had been before you went to the doctor, back when you knew something was wrong, but you had no idea what it was. So your anxiety now is less oppressive somehow. Um, <clears throat> it's less vague and ominous because it has a defined object. You still feel sick, but somehow having a diagnosis has helped. Why is that? Your doctor, there's a number of reasons, probably we'll be coming back to this throughout the, the talk tonight. Your doctor has given you an explanation for what you've been feeling. So for starters, you know that you're not just crazy or you're not just a whiner. Um, she's also given you a language for understanding it. Your condition has a name, which means that you're not alone. Other people have had this condition before. That's why it has a name. <clears throat> it's a known phenomenon. And there's now something to be done. There's the possibility of action, which means Lord willing, there's the possibility of healing. <clears throat> Your symptoms, the aches and the pains and the insomnia now fit into a broader narrative that includes potential treatment, recovery. They're not eternal realities here to stay. Uh, it makes the, it relativizes them in a way. <clears throat> For all these reasons, even though you have received some bad news and you still feel pretty ill, somehow you have a sense of relief. That's where the metaphor ends. Um, this is a lecture about the fall, not about uh, medical diagnoses. Uh, but I want to hold the metaphor, want you to hold the metaphor just as we go along, uh, this metaphor of sickness and diagnosis <clears throat> as we go. The fall is a well-known part of Christian belief. Uh, there's nothing really cutting edge about tonight's lecture in terms of the theology <laughs> that we're going to be talking about. Uh, it's a well-known doctrine of the church. Um, but it's a part of Christian theology that people in the Brie tend to emphasize a lot. It's, it's, we talk about the fall a lot. Um, Joshua did a lecture last week on the five themes of the Brie, which are these, these five sort of broad areas of of Christian thought, which over, over many, many years of being in the brief, we found we, we emphasize again and again. One of them is the doctrine of the fall. What does it mean to live under the shadow of the fall? Uh, and so there's, there's, there's good material uh, for more information about the fall, if you're interested. Uh, <laughs> living under the shadow of the fall is a lecture that Dick has done many times. Um, but why do we talk about it so much? It's not just because we enjoy being gloomy. Um, we have, well, most of us, <laughs> but um, we found that many Christian people have not thought about it much at all, or at, not, at least not deeply. We can never assume that people have a firm grip on the doctrine of the fall, particularly making the connection between particular hard things in their personal lives and then this distant doctrine. What's the connection between those two? Uh, what are the fall's real life effects? We can talk more about why this might be, but in any case, many Christian people find themselves spiritually at sea when difficult things start happening. And I would say that people who are not Christians at all are even more at sea when, uh, when confronted with pain and evil and hardship. 
You know, Labrie, we found that to talk about and understand the fall in some depth ends up being hugely helpful and clarifying for many people. Uh, it can even deepen our faith and our joy and our thankfulness to God, which is, which is an ironic thing. Uh, but hopefully, as we go through this talk tonight, it'll become clear why I think that is. And, and to, be, to be as clear as I can be, the fall itself is not good news. This is not what I'm trying to say. Uh, the fall itself is really the root of all bad news. Um, it's a disastrous event with terrible and lasting consequences in the world. But the Bible tells us that it is part of reality. It's a fact. It's a nasty fact, but it's a fact nonetheless. However, the doctrine of the fall is different. The doctrine of the fall is the way Christians have understood and articulated that disaster based on the witness of scripture and based on plain observation of reality around uh, everywhere you look. Uh, death, pain, poverty, betrayal, cruelty, sickness. Having a doctrine of the fall has meant that throughout church history, there has been room in the realm of Christian thought to talk about what is wrong and why. To name it. So having a doctrine of the fall means the question of what went wrong holds a crucial place in our theology. It's fair game to talk about that. My basic point tonight is that while the fall itself is the worst news, having a way of understanding and articulating it as we experience the harshness of the world can be very good news. Uh, it can be very, very helpful. So something can be bad, and yet knowing about it can be good. To return to our opening metaphor, an illness is bad, but an accurate diagnosis is a good thing. Uh, and this is what I want to explore in this talk. So <clears throat> my outline, so you know that there's a plan. Um, it's just, I'm gonna spend a little bit of time talking about what, it, what it, this even is. What does the Bible claim about the fall? Um, and then the second section will be delving into this question, what's good about this news? <laughs> and looking at it in two different categories, the fall, or the doctrine of the fall is an account, an account of reality, but also a, um, a way of critiquing what we see. And then secondly, and lastly, this idea of, uh, Full healing requires a complete diagnosis. Uh, the possibility of, of healing that, that understanding the fall presents to us. So, <clears throat> first section uh, the Bible account, uh, the biblical account comes from Genesis 3, um, as many of you know, but you have to read Genesis 1 and 2 to have any sense of what Genesis 3 means. Uh, Adam and Eve have been created by God and placed in the garden to tend it and to exercise the dominion that God had given them by being fruitful and multiplying and by bringing further order to God's good creation through cultivation, through the creation of, of culture, essentially. God's creation, of which Adam and Eve are part, was very good as God had made it. But it's a fascinating thing because it's good as God had made it, but there's also room for development there's there's this is part of what adam and eve's calling is adam and eve were in a position of loving authority over creation even though they are part of creation and and, and uh embedded in it um but they have a position of loving authority over creation but also a position of submission to god's authority so their authority is not absolute 
They were in a sense over creation, but under God, designed to have dominion horizontally and, and, and maybe downwards, uh, but also designed to have trust upwards to the Lord who made them. So dominion and trust are, are key aspects of what um, an unfallen humanity looks like. They were placed in creation very intentionally by God to be stewards, which means caretakers of what was his, and they're answerable to him. But also with a real measure of freedom to explore and invent and impact the world around them. So this role of stewardship over creation was tied to their identity as image bearers. They were made to resemble their maker, which uh, gave them intrinsic value and dignity, but also endowed them with unique capacities, which means that another way of saying it is uh, Adam and Eve were the image of God just by virtue of being human, but they could also image God. They could also actively seek to imitate him, image as a verb, they could image God uh, as they exercised their dominion in his creation, as they cared for the creation, as they learned that they could affect reality around them. Um, always with the goal of imitating him. So as God lovingly cared for his creation, so his image bearers were to imitate that kind of rule. The picture that Genesis 1 and 2 gives us is one of, of harmony, health, and goodness. Uh, people who know about these things tell me that the word is tov, just <laughs> good. It is good. It is very good. This is the, the, the word that... Um, uh, Genesis tells us God uses to describe what he's seen uh, over and over again. But it is, it's not just a bunch of good individual things standing on their own. Ooh, that's good. Well, that's good too. Um, it also implies a goodness of the relationships. So there is relational goodness. Uh, there were good and healthy connections between each aspect of creation. Everything functioned in relation to everything else. There's harmony, not just a bunch of unrelated melodies, you could say, if you're gonna think about it in a musical way. Interestingly, I sometimes um, reflect on this, that uh, both C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, when they, when they write their creation narratives for their worlds that they've created, you know, so C.S. Lewis um, you know, is the author of the, the Chronicles of Narnia, the creation narrative in Narnia is a song. <laughs> Aslan sings the world into existence uh, and then creation starts to sing and it's one big harmonious um, piece of music. Likewise, Tolkien in Silmarillion described the creation of all of, all of the world uh, as Elivatar, the, the great god singing. <laughs> and, uh, and so this, this metaphor of music and um, independent melodies that are that harmonize with each other is a very powerful image i think that occurred to both of them but the word harmony comes to mind so the fundamental relation the, the real foundational relationship of health is that between god and and humans uh, that is the crucial relationship that is good that is tov uh, in the beginning because people were god's special representatives in creation and creation's representatives to God, in a sense, uh, the health of the whole creation depend, depended on the health of the human relationship to the creator. So 
uh, Adam and Eve have in a sense a much greater responsibility than the rest of creation. <clears throat> Some of these other relationships were the relationship between people and other people, obviously, uh, between people and between a person and themselves, um, the relationship between people and creation itself, and then relationships within creation. All these things were as they should, should have been. Um, and these relationships were good and as they should be, but like I said, dependent on the right relationship between the Lord who made everything and the people who he placed as stewards in the garden. So this is the state of things before the fall. Genesis 3 describes the temptation of Adam and Eve by the serpent, who is Satan. And it all begins with a subtle lie about God's intentions. His intentions in withholding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from Adam and Eve. Um, there's been many, many readings of this text. Uh, but these are, these are the things that have um, occurred to me in the context of this talk. Um, keep in mind that Adam and Eve have no reason not to trust and obey the Lord. Uh, he's literally given them the world. Uh, he has more than provided for their every need. He's shown his love and commitment to them in every possible way. And yet, with the devil's instigation, they begin to focus on and interpret God's one prohibition as a sign that God wanted to withhold good things from them. He is not to be trusted, maybe. Somehow his authority over them is unfair, maybe. Inappropriate, out of place, something to be challenged. What is he up to? Who does he think he is? Satan's false portrait of God is one of an insecure and nervous king who's always trying to make sure his subjects never get too strong or too smart. Remember Satan tells Adam and Eve, like, oh, he, he just told you not to eat from that tree because he doesn't want you to, uh, to be like him, knowing good and evil. And so you can see how that's a picture of an insecure God, someone that maybe is afraid of being usurped. <clears throat> And this is a picture of competition between God and people, which is, which is an absurd idea, but something that um, I think the devil planted. They take and they eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's important not to, to read this as motivated in any way by physical hunger or by innocent curiosity or uh, something that's motivated by just a natural, innocent desire for knowledge. <clears throat> The fall has sometimes been characterized as a, as a heroic act of resistance against a God who desires to keep them ignorant in the dark. And that somehow to take the fruit was a part of their maturing process. Uh, and this is a terrible misunderstanding of the situation because it's basically rephrasing Satan's lie. <laughs> this is basically just buying into his, his telling of the story. Uh, to know good and evil, what this tree would have given them, in the context of this passage, is to be the definer of good and evil, it's to be the determiner of what is good and what is bad. Before the fall, when they were in a trusting and loving relationship with their father, they already knew what was good. It was to be obedient to God. He was the determiner of these things. Whatever he said was good, was good, because all life and all health and all goodness flowed from him. So Adam and Eve were not ignorant before the fall. Uh, they were not in the dark. They actually saw reality more clearly. 
they knew that whatever went against God was the very definition of wrong. So to take the fruit was an attempt to usurp God's right to determine right and wrong. It was to say, no, we can define what good and evil are without any reference to you. Which is to say they were creatures dependent on God, attempting to be God at the same time. So you see the, uh, looking back on this, we can see the absurdity of that. Um, creatures dependent on God, attempting to be God. Although we all uh, participate in this in some way ourselves. This is what idolatry is. Um, so in a sense, in a sense, they got what they wanted. <laughs> the fall began the tragic history of human autonomy, which is self-law, that's what autonomy means. People continue to want to define what is right and wrong for themselves with no reference to any creator who might require something of them or to whom they might have to submit. But that autonomy doesn't actually correspond to reality. Uh, we make poor gods. So, because true humanness was to be in relationship of loving trust and dependence on God, Adam and Eve, when they reject that relationship, remember the, the, the foundational nature of that relationship, uh, they fall from their rightful and their glorious place as human beings in creation. They become actually less human than they were intended to be. This is what sin does. And this starts right away. They immediately uh, realize that they are naked and they are ashamed of the fact, uh, something that would not have occurred to them um, before they ate the fruit. They suddenly feel indecent, unacceptable, and terribly exposed, and they try to hide from God in Genesis 3. Um, Genesis 3 gives us an account of a curse, which is sort of like a summary of all the terrible ramifications of the sin of Adam and Eve. This is what will come about. This is what you are to expect in the world now. And the consequences of their rebellion are wide and they're deep. They're wide because everywhere we go, we find the fall. There's no safe zone in the world. <clears throat> but also the, the consequences are deep because it's touched every part of us right to the core. No matter how deeply we delve in ourselves, we find fallenness. We ourselves are fallen. We see it when we look inward, not just outward. I'm going to, I'm, I'm not going to op offer a lot of sort of exegesis or interpretation of Genesis 3, but I will read it uh, just so that we have it in our minds as we go forward. <clears throat> and hopefully I will remember to change the slides. <laughs> People holler at me if I, if I keep reading past where this ends. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you, gave, who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. 
the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts. Oh, thank you. I knew it would be necessary. <laughs> <clears throat> cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not even eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. So <clears throat> the relationships that had been whole were now fractured. So the harmony of creation has been radically disrupted. The musical analogy would now be a series of clashing melodies. Um, starting with the foundational relationship um, between God and people, I'll, I'll break it into two parts, the relationship of God to people and then the relationship of people to God. Um, God's relationship to people became one of necessary separation. God is holy and cannot look on sin, and yet the people he made and loves are full of sin. So the fall introduces a terrible new chapter in the relationship between God and, and the humans he's made. He's no longer simply a loving father to his children, but also a judge to criminals and a king to subjects who have committed treason. God still loves the people he's made and yet he is justified in his wrath. People's relationship to God is not one of trusting children to their father anymore. It's one of fear and distrust and shame. Because of their sin, they feel completely exposed and unsafe. Think of this idea of being naked. It's not just talking about physical nakedness. It's naked in every sense, exposed in a way that would not have been a scary thing to them before they had sinned, but now somehow is because of God's holiness. <clears throat> God's holiness, um, which had been a glory, was now a horror to them. They're terrified of being seen by the one who sees all. So they're in an impossible position here. Uh, people in one way or in another have been running away from God ever since. His presence was no longer home. They head out into a harsh world in which their maker is distant and unknown. And ever since have been trying to, in one way or another, fill the horrible void. This is what people have been doing ever since, trying to find substitutes for the only relationship that can truly give hope and security and meaning. And so this is uh, alienation. 
and it's often been referred to as, as uh, humanity self-orphaned. Um, orphans, no, no longer children of the Father, and yet uh, something that they have done themselves. Now, as soon as this vertical relationship between the Lord and, and his people is broken, so are the horizontal relationships between people and other people. So it's amazing how swiftly people turn on each other, or you could just say Adam <laughs> turns on Eve uh, when there's no longer a good relationship between him and his maker. Adam attempts to make himself look less guilty by shifting the blame to Eve for taking the fruit and then suggesting that perhaps God had made a mistake by giving Eve to him. So when faced with the horror of his own guilt, he betrays his wife and insults God in one breath. We can see that it was God who was the architect of good, loving, trusting human relationships. Love and respect and trust between humans was an aspect of their obedience upward to him. So much so that when the architect is pushed away, there's nothing to keep human beings from turning on each other. The relationship breaks down. And so enters competition and jealousy and disloyalty and impatience and spite and lies and murder within the next generation. The relationship between humans and creation is very complicated and multifaceted, but it's also fractured. Adam and Eve are no longer loving rulers who rightly exercise their dominion over a willing creation, bringing further glory to God. Work becomes toilsome. They no longer work willing ground, but ground that resists their efforts. Getting enough food to eat will be difficult, but also will be a source of anxiety. Having enough is no longer a given. There's a fear of scarcity. There will always be scarcity anxiety. This is something that, um, but the sweat of your, the sweat of your brow. This isn't just about working hard. That that expression is is um, is also referring to the, the constant presence of anxiety about having enough, providing, surviving in a world that's no longer hospitable in the way that it was. There's a relationship of competition, hostility, and fear between humans and the rest of creation. So other creatures are afraid of people. People are afraid of other creatures. Dominion, which was, a, which was think about it as, as power that's rightly exercised, appropriate power <coughs> exercised under, under God's rule. Dominion becomes domination, which is a human tendency to use our agency to exploit, in, in this case, the natural world, uh, to exploit. And uh, much of the time motivated by greed, usually of some kind. So our relationship to time, you think of time as part of creation also. It's a created reality. God places Adam and Eve not just in the garden, but in time. And that aspect of, of the human relationship to creation is broken too. We procrastinate and waste time that should be spent differently. We rush through things that should be approached slowly. We feel bored when we feel we have too much time on our hands. We feel stressed and exhausted when we feel we have too little time on our hands. Uh, we're very seldom at peace with time as it comes to us. Joshua's done a great lecture on, on 
being at home with time or something or being friends with time uh yeah yeah like being friends with time so, yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah if you want to check that out it's probably still up on our podcast um but instead of getting at that why why are we so uncomfortable with time <laughs> we never it never seems to be passing at the right rate for us right <laughs> Another another broken relationship is, is uh, again, very complicated. I'm only sort of um, tipping my hat to it as we pass by, but the relationship between a human being and themselves. Uh, ever since the fall, a human being is an inwardly fragmented thing. No person is a coherent whole. We are at war with ourselves in our minds and our souls. Just some examples. Uh, there is a disconnect between our reason and our emotions very often. What we know is right and good does not correspond to what we desire very often, which leads us, like Paul in Romans 7, uh, to do the very thing we hate and fail to do the thing we know is good. Um, he's describing this, this internal disintegration. So he's not coherent in, in, inside himself. Uh, another way of saying this is that our loves are disordered. I think this is a, a way that Augustine spoke about it. Um, what we know to be true does not always appear beautiful to us. <clears throat> our words and our actions do not line up with each other. This is why we are hypocrites. We say one thing and affirm one thing is good, and then we do the opposite sometimes. Again, this is not all the time, but this, this is, we see these as tendencies in human beings. Um, our words and what we know to be true often do not line up. This is why we lie. We avoid the truth. We bend the truth, usually to protect ourselves in some way. We allow ourselves to be controlled by what we perceive other people might want to see in us. For some of us, we do that so much that we hardly even know what we desire anymore. Our perceptions of ourselves, ourselves often do not come close to, to reality either. We sometimes have delusions of grandeur inflating ourselves, inflating our importance in our minds, or we absolutely refuse to see anything good, self-hatred to the point of just utter, um, yeah, utter discouragement. So basically we are incoherent, jumbled mystery, even to ourselves. And all of this really is talking about reasonably well-adjusted people. Um, there are a host of psychological disorders, which are more acute examples of the inward fragmentation that's a result of the fall. Uh, finally, and horribly, death itself is the breakdown between our bodies and our souls. The connection between our bodies and our souls is even, is even broken at death. Things that were meant to be joined together, death is a tearing apart or a disintegration of what was meant to be integrated forever. Now, just to step, there's obviously so much more that could be said, but just to step back a little bit and um, offer a few reflections. <clears throat> there is still goodness, thank God. Despite all this, people are not completely ruined. There's still goodness in people. We are capable some measure of love and truthfulness and self-sacrifice. We're still bearers of God's image, although it's, it's, it's a portrait that's defaced 
but the portrait is still there. It's been vandalized, maybe you could say. But what the, fraud, what the fall brought was not complete, unmitigated corruption, but rather prevalent or pervasive corruption. In other words, people have not become wholly evil through and through, but every aspect of our humanity has been touched and bent in some way by the fall, without exception. There is no pure, unfallen little compartment in our hearts. Fall has seeped into every part. To use a gardening image, we've done a lot, because of all the amazing spring weather we've had, we've done a lot of weeding in the garden lately and various students have been very helpful, thank you. Um, but to use a very discouraging gardening image, um, I can still see the flowers that were intentionally planted in my garden, stalk, the irises, the peonies, but every single stem has a bindweed vine growing up there. <laughs> um, you can almost see it grow, it's so, Vigorous. Some hint of the intended beauty is still there, but everything is in some way hampered, burdened, strangled, uh, unable to express its full glory. But there's some glory there, right? We often try to summarize this nuanced reality with the term glorious ruin. That's, that's why I post these pictures. These are just the result of a 15 second Google search for ruined cathedrals. <laughs> this one's almost a little too beautiful to communicate my point. I, I feel like it looks better than it even did. But anyway, um, that's not the point. Um, glorious ruin. People are glorious ruins, which is this, this picture of a massive bombed out building with vines growing through the windows, maybe years and years of dirt on the floor. In this case, if there's like a brook going through the middle, I don't even understand how that happened. But, um, uh, and yet the glory of what it was can still be seen. It's still a cathedral. Um, creation is also in a sense a glorious ruin. Scripture, if you think about it, scripture refers to creation as both groaning in travail and as declaring the glory of God. It's groaning in travail all the time and declaring the glory of God all the time. <clears throat> Maybe more in some places than others. All this is to say that there's lots of ruin, but not all is ruined. So there are glimpses and glimmers of God's heavenly intention, both in people and in creation. That's sort of the first, first reflection in response to, to the fall. Another, another aspect, <clears throat> the, the fall is without and the fall is within. So the effects of the fall form a very, very complex and distressing web of pain and suffering around us and within us. It's complex because we as humans are always both victims of the fall and participators in the fall. We're both sufferers and perpetrators, sometimes at the same time. Some bad things happen as a direct result of our own sin. We have to just be, be uh, just acknowledge that. Um, but also as a result of other sin against us. And then we're sometimes simply caught up in the fallenness of the world. Uh, so much of life suffering is just out of our control entirely, not a result of anyone's sin, uh, but simply because we're living in a twisted world in which we are not immune. Natural disasters happen, not because I've done something to bring them on myself, but 
It's because the world is fallen and I'm in it and I'm not immune. In it all, I think the Christian response should be one of grief, but not surprise. This is not to say that terrible things will never shock us. Sometimes we, we are shocked by specific things, but the idea that bad things happen should not shock us. The effects of the fall are terrible, but in a sense, Christians should be living with an expectation of fallenness. Our sin, other people's sin, and the general tendency for things to go wrong in life, these things will obviously cause us pain, but they should not shock us that they happen. We're called to shun evil and resist its work, but not be naive to it. This is maybe part of what Jesus means when he says be... Uh, innocent and doves, but wise as serpents. Don't be naive to the fact of, of, of evil in the world. And this kind of expectation of fallenness is not about being morbid or being resigned. Um, it's about being realistic and level-headed. It's being prepared to meet the world as it actually is. Uh, keep talking about Joshua, but I'll say it one more time. A little shout out to Joshua. Uh, he had a good phrase last week in his lecture uh, when he was talking about the fall. Uh, too many of us have unfallen expectations of a fallen world. We have unfallen expectations of a fallen world. The world is fallen, and yet we go about it expecting it not to be, at least for us. Um, <clears throat> such that disappointment can shake us to the core. It can shake us more than, than it even has to. So no, uh, there will be disappointments in life and our theology should prepare us for it. One, uh, this is just a, a total side comment, but, um, but one implication of this is that Christians should never try to form utopian communities. Uh, we believe that people are broken and uh, structuring society around the belief that progress is inevitable and that people are perfectible, not a Christian idea and it's disastrous. Historically, it's always been disastrous because people are not perfectible. And when it becomes clear that they're not, usually someone else gets blamed. And um, sometimes even um, eliminated from society. So um, there's no room in Christian theology for an, uh, this idea of a utopian society, uh, this side of heaven. I want to move on to the second section. What good news in what way? What are we talking about? How is how is the doctrine of the fall good news? Um, remember that um, um, remember that you've been feeling sick. Remember that's our analogy, and you don't really know what it is. But then you get your diagnosis. You're not happy about the diagnosis, but you know you wish you were healthy. But at the same time, you're glad to know what it is you have. Why? I'm just going to circle back around on this, this issue one more time. Two basic reasons broadly. First of all, because you know you're not a crazy hypochondriac. We already mentioned that. Um, it helps you to begin to make sense of what you have been experiencing, but had no way of understanding or articulating. It reveals to you the way you've been feeling was not just normal. And the diagnosis helps you to actually adjust your expectations appropriately, your expectations of your own energy levels, your expectations of what you can get done in a day, your expectations of what you should be able to do. Having the diagnosis helps you to, 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 
to um, begin to embrace expectations that are realistic. That's the first, the first uh, way in which this is helpful to have a diagnosis. It, it helps you to make sense of what you've seen. Uh, secondly, uh, the diagnosis is a relief uh, because now you be can begin to think about what to do about it. The right treatment can only come after the right diagnosis. So to know and name the problem makes healing a real possibility. And these are analogous to the two reasons why I think the doctrine of the fall is good news in a broken world. The fall is an explanation that accounts for reality that we see every day and provides grounds for critiquing what we see. I'll talk about that a little bit more later. And it provides expectations of life that fit reality. That, that's just the first, I'll say that again. The fall is an explanation that accounts for reality that we see every day, provides grounds for critiquing what we see, and it provides expectations of life that fit reality. But then the second major area in which it's, it's a, a, a good and a helpful thing. Uh, it's also a way of framing brokenness that opens a door to potential healing. And ironically, it can form in us a deeper awareness and a deeper gratitude for the power and scope of our redemption in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> I'm just going to start with this this first uh, an account and a critique of reality. The fall uh, is perhaps the least abstract of Christian beliefs in that there's hard evidence for it everywhere we look. Um, the facts seem to back it up. In the book, Orthodoxy, G.K. Chesterton writes this. He's talking about the concept of sin, um, which we could say is the fall in the heart of each person. We'll just read this <coughs> section. Sorry, the, the, the uh, font is small. Modern masters of science are much impressed with the need of beginning all inquiry with a fact. The ancient masters of religion were quite equally impressed with that necessity. They began with the fact of sin, a fact as practical as potatoes. Whether or not man could be washed in miraculous waters, there was no doubt at any rate that he needed washing, or wanted washing. But certain religious leaders in London, not mere materialists, have begun in our day not to deny the highly disputable water, but to deny the indisputable dirt. Certain new theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology that can really be proved. Some followers of the Reverend R.J. Campbell in their almost too fastidious spirituality, admit divine sinlessness, which they cannot see even in their dreams, but they essentially deny human sin, which they can see in the street. <clears throat> so he says, original sin is the only Christian belief that can really be proven, and yet absurdly, it's the doctrine that contemporary theologians and ministers are most eager to deny. <laughs> He's getting at this. It's like of all the, if you think of all the very key Christian doctrines, um, you know, fall and sin, maybe maybe can't be proven, 
in the sense of uh, you know like a like a mathematical proof or something like that. But there's more concrete evidence for it than most other Christian doctrines. It does not take great faith to see brokenness in the way that it takes maybe great faith to believe in the incarnation. <laughs> um, <clears throat> whether or not someone is a Christian, everyone lives in the same pain-filled world, and in one way or another, everybody has to respond to it, whether it's by explaining it in some way, uh, seeking some way of transcending it in your mind, actively ignoring it, the fallenness of the world eventually gets everybody's attention, even if it's just with death. It gets people's attention eventually. So some people who do not believe in the Bible look at the disintegration and even have a sense of the ancient calamity. This has been, uh, Jeremy Begley refers to this as a, the intuition of the fall. It's people that, that don't even have a doctrine of the fall, don't, don't believe in the Bible, um, but they look around at the disintegration and, and there's, some, there's some intuition of the fall. And I'll, this is actually a, um, a quote from George Steiner that, that I'll read in a second. Jeremy Begbie, who's a wonderful theologian um, and musician, wrote an essay called Beauty, Sentimentality, and the Arts. And he refers to George Steiner's autobiography. Begbie writes that Steiner, who was not convinced that God existed, was nonetheless flooded by, and this is a quote, a sense of the evilness of evil, of some calamitous break with goodness. And then Begbie goes on to, to quote Steiner directly. This is, a, this is a rough quote. I apologize if this is kind of a harsh quote, but it's, it's uh, very worth reading. There are those who tear out the eyes of living children, who shoot children in the eyes, who beat animals across their eyes. These facts overwhelm me with desolate loathing. At the maddening center of despair is the insistent instinct, again, I can put it no other way, of a broken contract, of an appalling and specific cataclysm. In the futile scream of a child in the mute agony of the tortured animal sounds the background noise of a horror after creation. Something, how helpless language can be, has gone hideously wrong. I am possessed as by a midnight clarity by the intuition of the fall. Only some such happening, irretrievable to reason, can make intelligible, though always near to unbearable, the actualities of history on this wasted earth. <clears throat> There's such an overwhelming evidence that something has gone horribly wrong. Steiner senses it. And the evidence, I think, again, it comes, I'm breaking everything up into two parts today, I'm sorry, but it, just, I see it in two aspects. There's just the obvious evidence um, of where we've fallen to, the sheer prevalence of evil and suffering and pain and cruelty everywhere we look, the raw quantity of wrong, the fact that every aspect of reality seems to be touched by brokenness in some way. That's the, that's the obvious part of the evidence there. But there's also the evidence of where we've fallen from. And you see hints of this in Steiner's quote there. There's a more subtle uh, kind of evidence, but you see it in our own response to that evil. The human impulse to scream no when we witness an evil act. 
what George Steiner articulates brutally, the, the desolate loathing, the intuition of the fall. Uh, from where does that intuition come? And what does it point to? I would say that this is evidence for the original goodness of creation that we all long for. It's evidence for the law of God that still occupies a precarious place in our hearts, right? Um, some intuition, not just of, of the wrongness, but an intuition of the rightness that's being violated. So it's this, this quote for me is so powerful because it reads like a confession almost. He's almost um, despite himself. He's faced with the most twisted acts of cruelty and his own vehement response points to some good that is being negated. He intuitively senses that there's some law which is intended to protect good, which is being brutally violated. And I think many people have experienced something of what he describes, maybe not as articulately, but evil appears to be a desecration, but there has to be some lost sacred thing. If it's a desecration, it means that something sacred is, is being trampled on, right? So George Steiner did not buy into the biblical narrative of the fall, but if he did, he would have, in his own words, it would have uh, made the experience of evil at least intelligible to him, he says. Not any more bearable, but intelligible. And I, I love his honesty. What does this mean that the fall makes evil intelligible? I, I don't want to overstate the case. I, I think we would be promising too much if we said that believing in the fall can explain precisely why each bad thing happens to you. Um, it'll tell you uh, what God is up to when he allows calamities. No, I, I don't think it does that. Um, believing in the fall will not satisfy us with specific reasons for why terrible things happen. Um, I think some of this will remain senseless and inexplicable. Um, but in any case, the Bible never promises us that God is going to tell us exactly why, whenever we ask why. And reading the book of Job is, is a very um, is a demonstration of that. Uh, and to say, well, it happened just because it's a fallen world. While this is true, it does not necessarily offer much comfort either. So um, I'm not trying to say just believing in the doctrine of the fall makes all these things easier. Um, the fall is an explanation of the origin of evil in the world. So standing alone, the doctrine of the fall doesn't uh, really explain the purpose of suffering now. To what end did God allow this thing to happen? Um, Without we'll promise an answer to that. So again, what does the intelligibility, what, what, what does Steiner mean by uh, <clears throat> to believe in the fall would make evil more intelligible? First, uh, to identify a tragedy as a result of the fall is to claim that things are not as they were supposed to be or are supposed to be. It gives us a language of wrongness for the experiences which otherwise would just feel wrong subjectively. So in a way, it's, it's, it legitimizes our, our deep intuition that something is wrong here. Without it, I think we're left with nothing to say but the great meaningless contemporary statement. It is what it is. Extremely annoying thing to say. <laughs> Never know what anybody means when they say it. 
<clears throat> probably because it doesn't mean anything. It is what it is. <clears throat> the doctrine of the fall says no, something is actually objectively wrong. It's not just your feelings about reality, it's objectively wrong. And this means that there is such a thing as what should be. It means that reality at its very foundation is moral. There's a moral aspect to reality at the very foundation of reality. Uh, how else could we say something should be and something else should not be? So there was a fall from an original goodness that should have remained. And I think this, this believing the doctrine of the fall allows us to, to say that and to carry that with us as we experience hardship. The great uh, children's author, Rosemary Wells, who wrote The Voyage to the Bunny Planet. This is one, this is a Labrie classic. <laughs> Read aloud at least once a term for the past 30 <laughs> years. Uh, Rosemary Wells gets it right. She's great. Anyway, uh, <laughs> <clears throat> for something totally different. <laughs> so the, the Voyage to the Bunny Planet is a series of three picture books. Each tells the story of a young rabbit that is having a terrible miserable day. Uh, stress at school, parents clueless or emotionally distant, embarrassment in public, getting beat up by rambunctious cousins, getting sick in front of the whole art class, being the only one in gym class who cannot do a cartwheel, <laughs> waiting for the bus in the snow and getting your shoes filled with snow. This is just a taste of the, the bunny planet, <laughs> the bad day. And at a certain point in each one of these stories, the bunny queen, whose name is Janet, rhymes with planet, uh, comes to comfort each one of these children, uh, taking them to the bunny planet. It seems like a dream. You're not really sure what's going on. Uh, but at the, in the bunny planet, she shows them the day that should have been, right? And so she says, uh, Janet says to Claire, come in. Here's the day that should have been. <clears throat> implying but never quite saying that your miserable day was full of things that should not have been. Should not have been. Uh, and the days that should have been are beautifully described in verse. The, the, she breaks into, sort of into verse. And there are pictures of police, of, not police, <laughs> of <laughs> peace, <laughs> wholesomeness, joy, uh, basically shalom. For rabbits, um, but really, uh, really, really quite beautiful and not and interestingly not sentimental. It, it, you don't you don't come away feeling like oh it's just about like think nice thoughts or go away to some pink fluffy cloud. It's always very gritty for some reason, and the the description of what is good is so wholesome and so tangible. And but at the core of these stories, it's quite a profound thing. It's like that you can say to a child that should not have been. Here's something that should have been. It's, it's just brazenly moral statements uh, about reality, about some things being, um, being good and other things being bad. And so uh, we tend to think of sin and death and, and misery as normal in the sense that they are everywhere. They're ubiquitous. Um, but the doctrine of the fall reframes sin and death and misery as abnormal in the sense that they're not a part of God's created intention. <clears throat> and they actually have no place in the new heaven and the new earth. There's, it's abnormal. 
They are unwelcome invaders, and they always have been, not a part of the natural order of things. But Paul pulls no punches, and he calls death the last enemy to be defeated. There's just no, there's no talk about um, death just you know, being part of, of the natural course of things. It's, it's really it's, it's viewed as an enemy and a disruption of something that was good. Once we believe in the fall, we can say this about all the effects of the fall. While they are ubiquitous everywhere, commonplace, they are not normal. They're signs that the good world has been screwed up. And actually, it's interesting, this, this is one of the, of the most helpful ways of, of viewing Jesus' miracles. He's, I think of this particularly in the Gospel of Luke, but in all the Gospels, Luke seems to be just really driving home this idea that, he, that in Jesus is just pushing back the effects of the fall everywhere he comes to give people a foretaste of what the kingdom of God is, right? Um, and <clears throat> he's, he's pushing back the effects of the fall by healing the lame, by restoring the sick, by casting out demons, by feeding people who are hungry. This gives people, like I said, a foretaste of what the world will be like when abnormal evil is forever defeated and normal goodness is restored. So uh, because miracles are unusual to us, we tend to think of them as the weird abnormal exception to reality, but it's really the opposite. And this is what the gospels are telling us. Sickness, physical disability, starvation, these are the abnormal things. Jesus' miracles are restorations of normality. It's like each one is saying, this is God's definition of normal. Get up and walk. This is his intention. This is how things should and will be. So the doctrine of the fall is a powerful foundation from which to legitimately say no, but also to evil, but legitimately say uh, there's something good <laughs> that is real. By implication, it gives us hope that there is such a thing as goodness. So like the diagnosis, we can say we're not crazy for being bothered. It's not just my subjective feelings. Something is objectively wrong. And all this, I think, really is, is kind of an argument for why the doctrine of the fall can actually appeal to non-Christians. <laughs> actually, can, it, I think for some people, this is the way into the Christian faith. Is, is, uh, is the doctrine of the fall itself. People like George Steiner, um, without a Christian worldview, can begin to make sense of reality. But the doctrine of the fall is also good news for Christians who are trying to avoid thinking about it. Um, I think there are different reasons why Christians downplay the fall and fail to connect the, that doctrine with particular difficulties in their lives. I'll summarize just a few attitudes. Um, it may sound familiar um, because this, this is not what I this is not what I think, but I'm just sort of uh, stating a, a view. Because the gospel is such good news, the Christian life should be marked by joy. The Bible tells us to rejoice. Christ has won the victory, and so we're supposed to lay claim to that now. So to dwell on the fall and to think about the fall so much and to to uh, allow our minds to linger on the fallenness of everything is to act as if Jesus' victory hasn't made a difference for us. Um, and there is such a thing as refusing to have joy, and, and, may, and some of us maybe need to hear that. 
but very often this perspective uh, embraces the already aspect of the Christian faith without acknowledging the not yet aspect of the Christian faith. So Christ, yes, has already won the victory through his death and his resurrection, but everything is not yet set right. So the outcome of the war is certain, but we're still in the thick of battles. This is, this is the place in history that we are in right now. Um, the victory is certain, the battle isn't over. Um, and so this can end up being a real denial of the fall by, by focusing on Christian joy. And at its worst, uh, it can become a real form of sentimentality. <clears throat> it's a, it can be a way of life that's so desperate to maintain positive feelings that it dodges the truth. Demands more and more pretense for, uh, from us, uh, pretense that everything is all right when it's really not. <clears throat> the health and wealth gospel, I think, is even more destructive denial of the fall's relevance to faithful Christians. Just it doesn't really apply to us. Why would it apply to us? So what gets referred to as the health and wealth gospel basically means, um, you know, if you're a faithful, obedient Christian, God will bless you with everything that you want. Health, wealth, comfort, security. Uh, it's the job of the, of the faithful to simply name it and claim it. To someone who believes this and thinks that they're living faithfully, uh, personal calamity and suffering just doesn't enter into the mental equation. The effects of the fall are viewed as not applying to the faithful. They are exempt because God spares them. Uh, but of course, this is untrue. This is not true. This does not happen. Um, it's a setup for severe disillusionment. When a loved one dies or when the boss the bo your boss asks for your resignation or your kid drops out of high school or your divorce is final or whatever, any one of these calamities, the pain you experience is unintelligible. If this is your theology. Because <coughs> there's no theology for things going wrong. There has to be a theology of things going wrong. So <clears throat> people sometimes convince themselves that it is God's punishment that must correspond to some specific sin and they comb through their lives looking for what it is that they did wrong to deserve this torment themselves this is one of the tactics of the friends of job for the book of job there must be something that you did because we all know that god blesses the righteous in life and would never do this to someone who's righteous right so uh, of course at the end of job uh, all of those friends are told that they were wrong <clears throat> Um, yeah, uh, or you can begin to believe uh, that God has not kept up his part of the bargain and become disillusioned with God's goodness. Uh, or the pain of admitting to other people and maybe to yourself that your life has been crushed uh, is just too much. So you grind your teeth and smile and pretend everything is fine because everything is supposed to be fine. And there's just a lot, I think in a lot of churches, there's a tremendous social press pressure to be okay, to be, uh, to have a smile on your face. And so the theme here is uh, not having a, a theology that things will go wrong in life leaves us very, very vulnerable. And it leaves our faith very vulnerable. Because as soon as something really hard does happen to us, which it will, uh, we, it's unintelligible. <laughs> we don't have a way of understanding it. And uh, it rocks us to the very core. 
some people think that a true Christian would never struggle with depression, and yet many Christians do. This often adds an extra layer to our pain and angst that's totally unnecessary. So we not only suffer from depression itself, but we uh, experience anger and grief and shame, maybe guilt for the fact that we're Christians who shouldn't be struggling with depression, but are. And that's the other layer. The first layer of depression is enough, it's enough. We don't need more angst piled on top of it. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, I mean, so, some people think that no true Christian should struggle with lifelong besetting sins. Think of things that, that uh, some of us struggle with and struggle with and fight and are not able to conquer in life. I think for many people, pornography addiction is one of these things. Um, and if we have this, this, this notion of health and wealth or this notion that the fall somehow doesn't apply to me if I'm really faithful to God, then uh, we assume a certain level of victory certain level of victory over sin in life is assumed. <clears throat> so why am I struggling with this still? What's wrong? And really what I'm saying, I mean, this is, this is Joshua's point here, that it's an unfallen expectation in a fallen world. But um, when we accept the reality of the fall in as unflinching a way as we can, we actually can see that no Christian is exempt from these struggles. Uh, final deliverance, yes. But protection from all the effects of the fall in the meantime, no. We're, we're promised that God is with us, but we're not promised that we will be exempt from the results of the fall. <clears throat> My final section here, I just want to talk about the doctrine of the fall as as a prerequisite for good news. Um, this is a passage from Jeremiah alongside something else. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. So the prophet Jeremiah is criticizing the religious leaders of his day who are completely self-serving and are of no help to a suffering people. And there's violence and there's desperate need for healing in the land. And what the, leader, what the leaders say is peace, peace. So it's like, it's all good. <laughs> like that. Um, hakuna Matata, whatever. Um, uh, by refusing to acknowledge violence, they can offer only light healing. So by not admitting the depth of the nation's problem, they can only offer superficial solutions. So as Christians who claim to believe that through his death and resurrection, Jesus undid the effects of the fall, defeating sin and death forever, what happens when we say peace, peace? If this is what we believe, um, that Jesus Christ has, has, has defeated death and sin, and, and will one day fully, fully do away with the effects of the fall. This is what we believe. What happens when we say peace, peace? What happens when we only acknowledge the shallow wounds that, that Christ has come to heal? Uh, or, or only think about the, the things that we think are superficial sins that, that he's come to die for. Um, these are different ways in which we sort of minimize the reality of the fall. Well, we end up having a very stunted view uh, of the power of Christ. And 
how incredible his redemption is. We miss out on the awe of what he's done. Think of the distance that he's come, the depth to which he has sunk, uh, the weight that was on his shoulders on the cross. Our praise and gratitude to Jesus will be weak when we have a, when we have a small theology of the fall because we look to the one who, who we're not taking seriously enough the problem that Jesus has come to fix. And therefore the fix seems like, well, not as profound as it should be. It's only with really a fleshed out understanding of the fall that we can begin to see the weight and the profundity of what Jesus came to do and what he came to undo. <clears throat> so uh, I, this is one of the reasons why I think having a theology of the fall really does lead to a deeper sense of the power of God's redemption. Um, and we can actually receive the gospel as truly the good news that it always has been. Uh, it's not just the sort of good news, it's the really good news because um, of the depth of, of the fall. Uh, Isaac Watts, one of my favorite hymn writers, who wrote the words on the right-hand side of the screen. Uh, this is from Joy to the World. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. The image uh, that I have in my mind is, a, is a, a cleansing deluge of water that will find and fill every nook and cranny of space because that's what water does. Water responds to gravity and fills everything. Um, nothing that has been made filthy will avoid cleansing. So this is joy to the world. But think of the pathetic, inadequate joy we would have if we only let his blessings flow into the shallow places. <laughs> this is what minimizing the fall does. Uh, you know, his blessings will flow to here, but no further. But what Isaac Watts is getting at is, no, everywhere in which there's brokenness, that's where his blessings will flow. Um, the blessings of Lord Jesus will fill the earth. Frederick Beekner uh, says this well. I'm going to close with this quote. It's from a book uh, called Telling the Truth, the Gospel as Tragedy, Comedy, and Fairy Tale. He's writing about what it means to preach the gospel. A lot of, a lot of it is about preaching, which he says has to be about telling the truth. Um, and the gospel itself, he, he describes as a message that must strip us naked before it clothes us. In other words, to really hear the gospel and accept what it is, truly, we need to have a very tangible, real sense of our nakedness, <laughs> our, our helplessness, our need for redemption. Without, without that powerful sense of our need for redemption, the gospel is never fully the gospel to us. <clears throat> And uh, I'll just actually just read There's two parts of this quote. Um, beneath our clothes, our reputations, our pretensions, beneath our religion or lack of it, we are all vulnerable to the storm without and the storm within. And if ever we are to find true shelter, it is with the recognition of our true nakedness and need for true shelter that we have to start. Thus, it seems to me that this is also where anyone who preaches the gospel has to start too. After the silence that is the truth comes the news that is bad news before it is good. The word that is tragedy before it is comedy because it strips us bare in order to ultimately clothe us. 
This is, of course, where Jesus starts. And his word of tragedy is, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And then stop there. Stop there, because I will give you rest is the word of comedy and comes after. All you who labor and are heavy laden. Jesus speaks his word as a tragedian. And the word floats free in the New Testament with no special event to moor it to and no special listener pictured as listening to it because it is addressed to anybody who will listen and there is no event to which it does not speak. It floats loose and can find its mooring anywhere. <laughs> I love that. It's, it's very, very true. It's, it's, it's um, come unto me, all ye who are who labor and are heavy laden. Uh, it's applicable to anything. Therefore, it's um, it's not moored to a specific, like he says, not tied to a specific character in the Bible. He's not saying this in a particular context. It's any context because we are uh, heavy laden. So uh, what I come away with after, after thinking about this topic is that uh, the problem is worse than we had feared. And so the good news is better than we could have hoped. Uh, and that's, that's why the doctrine of the fall is so important uh, to, have, to have clearly in our minds. Um, I think I will stop there. And this is a time when anybody that wants to raise a question or uh, an objection or whatever can do that. Anybody who's here in the room is, is free to go now or stay as long as you want. Uh, at some point or other, I will... Um, Try to figure out how to accept questions from people <laughs> online and hopefully that'll work well for me and you but we'll give people in the room a, a shot first and I think one way, if you do have a question and you're watching uh, from afar, I think you can um, raise your hand or, ju or just unmute yourself um, and speak loudly into your microphone. But, but uh, first of all, anybody else in the room? Jonathan? Yeah. Um, just a quick thought and kind of hopefully we'll turn into some sort of question. But mm. like you were talking about like using the fall as kind of like an avenue of faith or, or like it, it seems like it could be a good way to like lead people to faith and I just I was wondering like maybe what some sort of approaches could be used in that sense because there there are some people that just think life sucks and there's no rhyme or reason for it and you know like I'm thinking I'm thinking of uh, that quote from like the great American film Bruce Almighty like he says God is a mean kid with a magnifying glass and I'm the ant he could fix my life in five minutes if he wanted to, but he'd rather burn off my feelers and watch me squirm. Mm. You know, like people have that attitude in life. And like, I don't know, is, is there any way like you could frame it differently to people or any like, mm. I, I'm just thinking of like a starting point, you know? Yeah. I guess the obvious thing to say is that no, no two people are alike. Um, so it's very hard to say. Here's what you say, <laughs> people. but but uh, but yeah. I mean, what what I was getting at there is just the the kind of uh, people who want honesty and and they look around them and they see the world as it is and they want some 
attempt to be authentic about explaining what we see. And uh, very often, sadly, if they, if they look to the Christian faith, what they see is denials of the fall or sentimentality or attempts to be just happy and clappy and not actually really engage with the world as it is. And so I, I just think that the doctrine of the fall, not, not just the, the doctrine of fall gives us this explanation of everything that's horrible and screwed up in the world, but that it's a fall. It's a fall from goodness. So the doctrine of the fall includes this, this notion that, no, there's really good, there's, there's goodness in the world, but it's goodness that's been really tampered with. It's been goodness that's been, that's been messed up such that we see all of this pain and suffering, but the goodness is, is, is perceivable too. And it's that, I think it's that sort of like nuance that I wanted, that, that's just truth. And, and um, to me, it's one of the most convincing things about the Christian faith. And I think about, well, you know, uh, what other account, what, what, what other way is there to account for this bizarre mix of like beauty and misery that we see uh, in ourselves and all around us? Uh, even just if we just take people, people alone like how, how what, what other sort of like satisfying explanation is there for why people could be so amazingly like selfless and creative and and also so terrible and cruel and uh and sometimes um yeah so something there seems to be <clears throat> again th th this isn't a proof that that can convince anybody who wants a rational proof but it, but but it's but it's uh, a way of under, a way of understanding and making sense of what we see that actually works pretty well. I think you know, like there's how do we account for the goodness and the brokenness of people that we see and in, in, in ourselves? Um, and I all, my my sense, and I think I know some people that have experienced this. Like that that that's the way into the Christian faith in the sense that that that's what's really plausible. They look at that and they're like, huh, well that makes sense, <laughs> even if they haven't been able to accept anything else that the Christian faith claims. Um, I don't know if you wanted to come back on that or. or... No, I just, I think, I, I agree that it's relatable and most people, like if you use the like mountaintop valley experiences, I think most people are kind of, most people are experiencing their lives mm -hmm. in the valley, you know, mm -hmm. so I think it's definitely relatable. So. Yeah. Well, some, with some people, that's beyond our power to do. <laughs> Someone is determined to to uh, to keep thinking life sucks and then you die, and there's no no meaning to it. Well, there's I don't know if if anybody really believes that fully, um, but. Just I don't know. On. Yeah. Just hang on a second. See okay. the video cut out. Yeah. Thinking about that analogy from Bruce Almighty. Yeah. Uh, and something that then you were talking about is how having a doctrine of the fall helps us understand more of what Jesus endured. And mm -hmm. it's almost in that analogy, it's like, yeah, and God became an ant himself and like had the magnifying glass turned on mm -hmm. himself mm -hmm. that doesn't answer the pain that we endure but it does speak something to it yeah the wonderful essay by Dorothy Sayers where she says something very similar to that I mean, like 
whatever you think God is up to, the whole evil in the world, he's taking his own medicine. Like he's, he hasn't uh, subjected anybody to anything that he hasn't experienced himself. Um, which again, it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't do away with the, the problem, but it sets it in the context of God's character and, and ultimately um, what he's done to undo the evil, what he's done to actually. Clint. Mm -hmm. Good to see you, Clint. Good to see you. Do you have a My question? My question, I already put it on the uh, typed in dialogue, but it was about joy. Mm -hmm. uh, where's the joy and what is joy? Yeah, I'll just I'll look at the camera, just looking at Clint's face, which is I was happy to see Clint's face. There it is. What is joy and where is the joy? Um, yeah, well, I guess I guess part of the point of, of this lecture was to point out something which I think is a real weakness in some uh, in some Christianity, which is to um, by ignoring what we intuitively know is the case, which is that the world is really, really broken and screwed up. We actually rob ourselves of a very, very deep joy <laughs> because. The process of denying the fall means we're entering into, into a kind of a pretense. We're, we're, we're blinding our eyes to things, and therefore the joy that we experience is also has an element of pretense in it. Uh, we have to pretend things are better than they are because we're supposed to be joyful. And uh, yeah, sort of my, my, one of my main motivations for wanting to think about this was that I actually know this is the way to a much deeper and actually real joy that's based in reality, which is if, if we are able to understand some degree the depth of the world's brokenness, then we'll be able to maybe for the first time understand the depth of what God has done. Um, because it's, it, you know, if, if redemption in Jesus Christ means anything at all, it has, to, it has to apply to the worst case scenario. Otherwise, what's the point? What's the point of it? Um, and so uh, to me, that's, you know, the, the whole, in a sense, the goal of this whole lecture is, is to like try to help people to, to experience a deeper joy that isn't, that isn't based on pretending things are better than they are, you know. Um, now, the lecture wasn't about joy, so I didn't talk about it very much, but that's, um, you know, Christian joy, I think it has to be truthful. And I think it can be truthful if, if we're actually thinking about the, the, the reality of, of the brokenness of the world and then the, re, the, the, the greater reality that God has, God has conquered it. And one day it'll be fully, um, that victory will be fully um, realized. So um, I don't know if that's an answer, Clint, but that's <laughs> what came to mind. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah, do you have something? I'm just gonna say, you know, to return to your opening, story yeah. scenario you know the the joy is in the doctrine of salvation mm -hmm. that accompanies mm -hmm. the doctrine of the fall. Right. here's okay. the diagnosis guess what that's not the only news yeah there's more news too yeah um, so there's your next lecture i guess yeah, yeah.
Yeah. Just do a lecture on salvation because yeah. that's yeah. a small topic. Um, yeah. Lynn, do you have a question? Unmute. Okay, my question is, well, why did God create the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? You know, he didn't have to create that tree. <laughs> he, he allowed evil. So I'm, you know, why did God allow evil? He's, he destroyed his own creation. I'm not going to answer that question well at all because I, 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 I'm not quite even, I'm not quite sure how to approach it. Um, Evil isn't an entity in itself. Yeah. Um, you want to want to flesh that out? That's... <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, um, actually, another another Lynn is here. Lenny, meet Lynn. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Um, Lenny Dye was just saying that evil is not an entity in itself. In other words, evil is not personal and doesn't exist in the same sense that goodness and, and the Lord himself does. It's purely a negation. It's, it's a parasitic it's a twisting. thing. It's a it's twisting of something that's good. Um, and so I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know if, if that gets at the heart of the question necessarily, but, but uh, I, I understand what you're asking. It, it, it appears that God uh, place, places this possibility for sin and rebellion right in front of Adam and Eve's face and then blames them when they rebel. <laughs> is, that, is that kind of what's behind your question? Or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that? Well, there's the issue of freedom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, this, this, this is huge. I, I think there is no answer why... Why was the probation even there? Mm -hmm. uh, we're not told why it's there. It obviously has to do with, as you said, uh, they're asked to choose mm -hmm. God even when it costs them nothing. Mm -hmm. They have infinite health and wealth where they've got it. Mm -hmm. Everything is perfect. Uh, there's nothing that would tempt them in the sense of uh gosh they're they've got no food there yeah they, they're getting hungry what are they going to do they're going to starve to death or just go or, or disobey god it's not as if there's no greener grass on the other side yeah, of the fence <laughs> augustine asks us to in wrestling with that question says you've got to compare abraham's ability to sacrifice his son isaac mm -hmm. and he did it out of obedience to God, mm -hmm. to do it when he had everything to lose, yeah. God's promise, his loved son, everything. It's huge cost, yeah. obedience mm -hmm. to the choice of Adam and Eve, where there's no cost to them to obey God. Yeah. And, and uh, so it's not as if God sort of pushed them into it or something, mm -hmm. but there is the bare choice yeah. that's there. And to ask for a reason for that, a reason for sin in a perfect world is he would say a contradiction in terms because sin has no reason yeah. because that sin is irrational it's senseless sin and, and senseless and so it's it's it's, a, it's like asking to hear the sound of silence mm -hmm. uh, that was actually his term augustine term before somebody else <laughs> really <laughs> and, of course i made garfunkel yeah <laughs> but, but but 
uh, which is helpful to me yeah. to see this. But obviously, there's something in clarifying choice, mm -hmm. this titanic risk, yeah. uh, and presumably God knew which way it would go. Uh, I think we just haven't an answer yeah. to that. In the same way we don't have an answer to all sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, I think another thing, another aspect of that question that is helpful to me is while I can't, like you said, I, I can't answer why the, why God put the tree there. Uh, it's hard to know how much value there is in conjecture. But okay, so what what would it have looked like if there was no no tree there? What would it look like if there was no possibility for Adam and Eve to choose God of their own will? You know, um, and this is part of, I mean, maybe part of the great risk that God takes by creating people who, who actually are choosers, who have free will. Um, there is this implicit possibility that they may not choose him. And, uh, but the alternative, that can sound like, oh gosh, he's just, he's just destined them to fail. But what is the alternative? The alternative is just extensions of himself. Uh, creatures that don't have an identity in them themselves, that don't have free will, uh, and, and however you want to think about it, you know, puppets on the end of a string. Um, it's clearly not, that's clearly not what God is interested in when he creates human beings <laughs> who have a very limited, but, but nonetheless real ability to choose. And there's, there's a really, I remember what you were saying, Dad, a second ago reminded me of this, um, passage in the uh, Paralandra, um, which is like this, it's a, it's a creation and, and fall story, but the fall doesn't happen. It's like a fall averted story. It's great, <laughs> much more encouraging than Genesis 3. Um, <laughs> but it's uh, <clears throat> the, the prohibition on, on, on the planet Paralandra is that the, main, the, the woman that, that lives on this planet is not allowed to, to sleep or spend the night on the solid land. She lives on these islands that float and there's solid islands that she could go to during the daytime, but she's not allowed to sleep on them or stay there overnight. And it seems like a completely arbitrary, like, why is that a bad thing, dogs? You know, <laughs> um, and of course, this is the devil's kind of question to her, you know, and there's all, he uses every method he can to try to get her to, to, to violate this rule. And Ransom, the main character, eventually says, you know what, you know why? It's so that there could be obedience, that's why. <laughs> But also, they could depend and predict things on the fixed land. Yeah, it's, it's, so it's, it's plan their trust. own lives yeah. and trust in themselves yeah. instead of taking the wave that comes. Yeah, which in that book is the phrase for dependence on yeah. God, yeah. the trust that He will bring the good, mm -hmm. He will provide, and not doing it for ourselves. Yeah. It, it's all about. I, oh, I can have so much control, more control of my life yeah. if I'm on the fixed land. I can store things. I can like, store yeah. things. I can, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can take charge right. of my life. So maybe there is a real motivation for staying on the island, on the solid land. But at the same time, in the, in the, yeah. in the, in the context of Ransom's argument with this woman, he, he, he convinces her for the time being that like, actually, it's important for your relationship with God, for there to be obedience, for you to do something that he's asked you to do well, there's no real benefit for doing it. You're just doing it in order to please him. That's it. And that's actually a good thing. <laughs> um, anyway, Lynn, Lynn Vest, uh, I know this is a bit of a, we went on a kind of a tangent, but uh, did you want to follow up with that question or?
No, no, that was a great answer. You did a great job. Thank you. Okay, thank, you. thank you to everybody in the room. <laughs> yeah, Gustavo. So you mentioned um, about work and it being toilsome because of the fall and how pervasive the fall is. And so I guess it's not, it's not really a question as much as it's kind of two ideas that are clashing in my mind is, you know, it seems like a lot of what we do, like you said, like there's anxiety, right? You're even that um, new, for me, a new way of interpreting the sweat of the brow as, you know, you're worried about your provision because it's not guaranteed. Mm -hmm. And so in a sense, doesn't that make it seem like all of our work is ignited by something falling within us, which would almost make it seem like work is almost against Mm. resting in your heart so I guess mm. it's just kind of two things that are crashing in my brain is like you know you think about industry because you also said like you know God created things with room for development mm -hmm. but it also seems like industry in itself is fed by greed right mm -hmm. it seems like when we're industrious and we're working really hard I mean I guess that's a generalization but mm. so I don't know I guess maybe yeah I mean to me, there's there's clearly good work before the fall. That's not that's good just because it's work and and isn't um, it isn't toil. In other words, are not experiences as as horribly burdensome. It might have been hard, but but it's not experienced as toil. But it's also not motivated by greed and lack of trust in God and the the, the need to accumulate and hold on. It's 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 work, which is something that God invented. I mean, he. The, the language is amazing in Genesis says if we, if we put the man there to tend the garden it's like your purpose is to work you know here <laughs> um and so i think it's important to hold on to to uh this idea that work itself is a good gift from god but like everything else it's not that work has fallen in, in its in its very essence but it like everything else it's touched by the fall like everything else it's it's been corrupted and twisted by the fall so like, yeah you're right now, like how many people do we know that view their work with absolute purity and just do it because work is good and honoring to God? Like, no, none of us do that 100%. You know, it's great, it's great when we can experience some of that, but there's always some toil. You know, there's always some, oh, just doing this for the paycheck, or oh, I can't wait for the weekend, or there's always something like that going on, but it's not because work is bad as much as it is, it's just touched by the fall like everything else, you know? Um, yeah, well, I don't know if there's, if there's anything else, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think it's interesting in, in thinking about work, um, thinking about the Sabbath law mm -hmm. and how important the idea of, of resting on the Sabbath was for the people of Israel and, and that, 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 that it was a, it was a tremendous, um, it was to remind them all the time to help them trust God rather than, mm -hmm. than um, do like all the surrounding nations were doing, which is working like mad seven days a week because your life and everything, depend, it all depends on you. Mm -hmm. It's rather, rather um, it was an incredibly important thing. And, and you can even, you know, when in the beginning of Deuteronomy, it's one of my favorite parts of the Bible, actually, mm -hmm. where where Moses is preparing the people for entering this land where they're going to be surrounded by by pagan people, by people who are not Israelites, who don't have the law of God. And, um, and he, he tells the parents, 
take your kids' questions seriously. They're going to ask you all these questions. They say, why do we, why do we have these laws? Why do we have the Sabbath law? Why can't we live like everybody else? And, and then he, the response is, starts with, tell them the story. Mm-hmm. Tell them the story of redemption. Tell them how God rescued you out of, out of slavery, out mm-hmm. of, out of um, subjection, brought you, gave, gave you these good laws, which are life affirming, which mm-hmm. there's no other God like this, you know, who you can know, you can love and trust. And, mm-hmm. and this, the Sabbath, the idea of Sabbath, the idea of, of rest, it, work is a good gift. We, made, we were made to work, but we're also made to rest on the seventh day, to, to make, have a break, even as God did, um, which is amazing to think of God. You know, he rested on the seventh day. He looked at his work, said it's wonderful, it's good, very good, and he rested. So, and the, the great the unspoken commandment there, which is implied, is that you're going to be working the other six days. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. Didn't say take a Sabbath on the you know on the Sabbath yeah. in addition to the, all the uh, all the other days that you're sitting around. No, it's it's uh, no, you, you you will will be working. You know this is good and this is part of what people are made to do. But but don't get so obsessed with work and accumulation, and and don't lose your trust in God. Like you're saying, yeah. it's, it's, the Sabbath is an act of trust. I can stop working, and I'm still going to be okay. Even if my neighbor is still working and making more money than me. <laughs> I can yeah. stop and things are okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's also that's also interesting because I feel like work sometimes can help us um like get our mind out of maybe a negative place, just by like, keeping us busy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So in the sense that I feel like that also can answer things as to like maybe you know questions or why this or why that. Maybe if you're busy, you're gonna have less time to mm-hmm. question things that maybe don't need questioning right mm-hmm. now. Or in the case of Labrie, working hard as a way of processing your questions that you've been thinking about for the other half of the day. You know, like, oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. did you, Joshua, do you have a? Oh, no, I just agree. Okay. <laughs> not processing stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just yeah struck by you pointing out the word ten. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, pre-fall, mm-hmm. the word tending, and um, yeah, this caring for, and just how far removed from any act of really caring for so much work can be now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this removal from a sense of, yeah, a sense of care. Mm-hmm. Like it, and, and I think that's probably thought of the consumer society and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all that, but it, it's hard sometimes to make the connection of like, what am I doing that's actually caring for something mm-hmm. in the work? So. I think that in and of itself is also another example of that falling relationship mm-hmm. with our, yeah, with, with the, the rest of creation, yeah. our purpose in relationship to it. Yeah. It's just it's a little bit of a random Bible trivia, but about that, like, uh, <laughs> Ted and Keith in Genesis 2, the work that our, humans are given. The only other time in the Old Testament where those two words show up together is the work what priests do in the in the temple, mm-hmm. um, and so it's sort of like a subliminal way of I think I mean there's all sorts of other temple imagery in Genesis uh, one and two, but also just the, like the work that God gives us with our hands um, is is a sacred thing, like is is a is a, is a good thing especially prior. Yeah. Prior to the fall, it's been touched, but it's it's a it's a it's a noble thing, and it's 
you know, Genesis has this amazing presentation of a God who creates mm-hmm. and then he and and or he makes um, and then uh, he makes this beautiful thing that he says is good and then he makes people in his image mm-hmm. and then they're in, one way they image him is by working mm-hmm. and by creating mm-hmm. and making and then also tending and and, and, and caring for and anyway there's just I, it's like this it's a subtle thing but i think it's it, it could yeah it just help resituate those moments those moments when work isn't drudgery isn't isn't touched but where there's satisfaction and i mowed this lawn and it's gorgeous and, like, and it's you know, still mowed it's ten, still ten minutes mowed. later yeah yeah exactly or <laughs> hasn't been undone you know you know <laughs> teach a kid how to tie their shoes or um you know your students get a good grade or the whatever you're doing works it's this moment where, where things are you're bringing order some sort of order to, to, to chaos mm. in, in some ways and hard to, i don't know there's something about that i i I'm, i don't have this like fully like worked out or whatever there's something about it that is like it's mediating some of god's goodness in that like priestly sense and it's not just for the priests it's not just for the temple it's yeah. for it's not just priesthood of it's like priesthood of humanity is the intention. Right. That's one of the many, the many sort of clues that these early chapters of Genesis are, is is referring to all creation as the temple. Yeah. But, uh, interesting. Thank you for the Bible trivia. That's, that's yeah, fascinating. Yeah. It's a great thing oh. with Dorothy Sayers. Yeah. Um, she's got a great essay called Why Work. Oh, yeah. um, she's also got a, a play about yeah. the architect yeah. and this is um, homo faber man the maker mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. very good things about mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. paul i see that your hand is raised you have a yeah. yellow hand um, <laughs> um, yeah. Thanks for the uh, the lecture, Ben. I really appreciated it. I've actually been in a couple of conversations recently with a Mormon gentleman in my neighborhood, and they've got a very different view of this, obviously. Um, but just trying to gather ways of of responding to his perspective, you know, their faith kind of speculates a little bit about um, what life would have been like in the garden had they not fallen. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering, you know, from a biblical perspective like is it even worth speculating or could we say with any certainty you know oh yeah they would have had children they would have done this they would have done that um or is it sort of like presuppositionally just like not even a valid question mm. yeah that's i mean yeah that again that's it's that's a very hard question to answer for me um similar to why did god put the tree of knowledge or good and evil in the garden um i mean I, I, it's it's a it's a valid thing to contemplate because of because you know we read genesis 3 and we see how how wrong it is that what adam and eve did and then they you can't help but have your mind go to well what should they have done and what, what would have things have been like then <laughs> um yeah, but I, I have a hard time answering that, honestly. Um, it's, yeah, it, it, in a sense, it's not, 
it's not a, a, a question that presses me practically. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I guess the more, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, does anybody, anybody else have, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bail on that one too, if anybody has a, a thought. No? Yeah. I just think we're unwise to try to answer it. Unwise to try to answer it. It would have been a, a perfect world, but what God would have made mm -hmm. in a perfect world that says, we really have no mm -hmm. idea what, uh, how to understand it. Yeah. I mean, just yeah. think of any, if anything had gone differently in your life or my life, mm -hmm. uh, how would you have, how would you dare say what would have happened then? Yeah. We don't have the faintest yeah. idea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. History is so open. Yeah. Can you hear that from where you are? Yeah, I did. Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> really nice not having to repeat questions. Um, yeah. Yeah. Ready. I'm thinking it, it, it could make you, um, depending how your mind works and how you sort of fantasize about you know what might have been, can just make you. Um, very dissatisfied with what your what your life is mm -hmm. and in fact what is before you to do and what mm -hmm. what God wants you to do in a positive way to make the world a better place to mm -hmm. to deal with um, both to work positively and to deal with the fallenness yeah of work. Just make you, you know, what if what if if only, mm -hmm. if only in, a, in a way that's yeah. not very helpful <laughs> yeah well yeah I mean I can I can I can see how asking that question might not be a helpful thing. And then like, oh, Adam and Eve just hadn't screwed up. How much better everything would be? Well, you know, most of us might not exist. I don't, I don't know. Um, so in a sense, that's like, but, but is, it, is it worth contemplating? Like, well, what, 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 would, what would existence have been like had they not fallen? Like what, um, not, that we can, not that we can answer it, uh, but, I think there's reading the text. There's 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 reason to engage with that imaginatively. <laughs> you know what it, what is it that's been broken here? Um, because it doesn't like most of what I've said about the harmonious relationships between you know in the garden of like isn't explicitly said in the first two chapters of Genesis, but it's but it's engaging with with um, yeah with sort of the, with, the, with the whole scriptures and engaging with what what we know. It must have been like <laughs> I don't know. Um, so yeah, but it turned. Yeah, I should probably stop talking. <laughs> Christina, so <laughs> um, thinking about this lecture as giving Paulus good news, giving explanatory power, means it offers a, a kind of more room for healing to mm -hmm. actually come in when the fall news thinking about your point about the pervasiveness of the fall it affects every aspect of life it's not utter depravity mm. but it's total depravity um, thinking about the effect of the fall on our reason mm. i guess it's a little bit easier for me to think about i can see how the fall has affected my affections my desires um, my will mm -hmm. is fallen but and I know that my reason is also fallen, but it's harder to think about that because I'm using my reason to, mm -hmm. to think about that. Um, so I wonder what an account of why is why kind of what does the fall mean for our reason? Why is knowing that our reason is affected by the fall? Why is that a good mm -hmm. thing? 
Mm-hmm. How does that give us a helpful account? Mm-hmm. How is their healing to be found there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is just one, this is just a glancing mm-hmm. blow at that. This isn't a, a good, a good, thorough answer, but um, there is a, I think, a deep naivete among many people today that as long as it's as long as what I believe is based on on reason, that it's just objective. It's it's you know, um, as long you know as long as it's I can I can point to science to justify whatever I say. Then then I'm completely then I'm not influenced by faith and I'm unbiased and all these other things. And and part part of the reason that's naive is that. Uh, our re- like you said, our reason is affected by the fall the same way as anything else is, which means that we're not really, we don't really view things objectively, even when we say we do. Um, there's other, there's other motivations going on in us all the time, other than I'm just analyzing the evidence and making a rational choice. Um, and the way some people talk, they really, You think that they're, they're, they they really do think that as long as long as I'm just thinking rationally, right, then, then then there's no way that bias could be a part of what I'm doing, and and I think that's that's an aspect of it's just deeply naive. It's, it's not um, our, even our rational minds don't function in that way. Uh, we we can we can uh, yeah, I mean e- even just. Questions about God's existence and, and um, wanting to have uh, sufficient evidence for believing that God exists, and that, that question is there's lots we can talk about rationally here, but it's also the most loaded question in the whole world <laughs> in terms of what it uh, the implications for you, the implications for me if I if I were to affirm this or not. Uh, we have everything at stake in that question. It's not just an objective, um, cool, level-headed mm-hmm. process of inquiring into the truth. Like, <laughs> and that, I think we just need to admit that and, and uh, stop pretending that somehow rationality is just intrinsically pure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, any other thoughts on that? It's a really good question. Yeah, I, I think composition. And I think part of composition is to teach people to be logical. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that it's learned in a way. And I think some people maybe more gifted at logical thinking mm-hmm. or trying to be objective in certain ways. But I think part of my job as an English teacher is to help students become more objective about their own thinking. So mm-hmm. I think it, you know, I'm definitely irrational when I wake up in the morning. You know, I'm the most rational in the morning for some reason. Um, just very irrational. <laughs> so, uh, and then as the day goes on, I think I become slightly more rational. Um, that's how my brain is. And, um, but I do think that um, the, the process of becoming a, a more logical, rational person, um, if that's kind of what you're saying, um, uh, the mind. Uh, I think it's kind of learned, it's more learned mm-hmm. and then in terms of thinking about things objectively so that you're not totally self 
absorbed and self-centered. Yeah. And maybe that's one way the fall makes us messes up our logic and stuff. Self self-centered. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, um, but yeah, I, I, as I've gone forward, I've started to think about teaching like an argumentative essay as a way of learning how to be rational. Mm -hmm. Because it's logical, I, like yeah. I said, I don't think that I'm naturally rational, mm -hmm. or at least all the time, mm -hmm. you know, consistently rational. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's definitely yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think in a sense, it's one of the, one of the mistakes of sort of the enlightenment thinking was to say that, you know, we don't need, we don't need God, but we can, we can basically, uh, there can be progress through reason itself, which, and the assumption there is, is really, flying in the face of what I'm saying here because of the doctrine of fall, everything is affected. It's like all these other things are affected by you know, subjectivity, but reason, right. no, reason is clean and we can, we can like create a new world through reason. And that's, um, and that's just, that's just false. <laughs> Isn't that what Paul is saying in Romans yeah. where he talks about well, our desires mm -hmm. can affect yes. <laughs> our thinking yeah. Um, yeah without you know and mm -hmm. we're crazy to think that there isn't a connection exactly between yeah. our heart's desires and the wrong yeah. desires yeah. of our heart and, the truth. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it but it actually shapes i can convince myself that, mm -hmm. that i've got reasons for this yeah. but it's it's really you know mm -hmm. it's that contest between yeah the, the well lewis's you know the, the appetites, yeah. the heart, and the mind, yeah. and they're they're linked. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's, I think it even is like to, to say it's just you know if you you if you think about sort of a courtroom and putting evidence on the table, there's evidence that's before a judge or whatever. Um, and the, the myth is, well, you just you just put the evidence out there and you look at it and you make your decision. It's completely rational. It well, no. Your know. desires <laughs> and what you want to be the case influences what you allow into the courtroom at all. What you put on the table, what counts as evidence is a deeply metaphysical question and affected by your desires and your emotions and all the things, you know. And so, um, yeah, what, what, what you decide is admissible. I guess that's a legal term, but what's admitted into court, what's allowed to be called evidence mm -hmm. is, is uh, subject to, to all kinds of um, sin. <laughs> yeah, blind, yeah. Okay. Oh, I was just thinking about, yeah, just like how I was going to say lawyers and politicians are just like, and many, you know, religious leaders too are like great examples of people that can present rational arguments for lies. Um, yeah. And, and, Lay things out clearly and neatly, but in a way that it's just sort of self-serving and not for. Mm -hmm. So it's yeah, I think mm -hmm. I think our ability to um, rationalize our own uh, our own sin or mm -hmm. sort of explain it away. I think that's that has to be part of mm -hmm. part of what's going on. And mm -hmm. See that around us, and we yeah, we're prone quite cynical to it, but understandably, but. Rationalizing yeah. sin is an interesting way because because that's that's the one of the way because we supposedly trust reason yeah. so much that this is an objective reality I can use it to explain away something I know is per perfectly well is wrong. Yeah. 
because I, 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 I somehow trust reason better, more, yeah. more than I trust. You know. And I, I mean, I do this like yeah. standing in the pantry at like 1030 at night. Mm. And I know I shouldn't go get like, shouldn't get cookies. But, like, <laughs> some people I mean, are irrational late at night. Some are irrational uh, first thing in the morning. <laughs> So I, don't want to just I do that it. any time of day. I don't want to just like politicians and lawyers. So <laughs> yeah. 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 Already. Um, one of the best books, um, which sort of tells those the, the kind of stories and gives examples of of how reason is falling is um, a book I think mm. often gets people called Shantung Compound. It's about mm. um, a prison and board camp. It's it's a true reflection on the author's memories of being in a prison of war camp in in Japan. I'm sorry, China. in China. It was a Japanese prison of war camp in China. Mm -hmm. And there was no one had it, there was not nowhere near enough space for all the people who were there. And and it it actually, you know, the question one of one of the really good examples of how reason is fallen is um, some some new prisoner, another prisoner was came in and had to find a room for him. There's two rooms. One of them is bigger than the other. One of them has has fewer people in it than the other. So, I mean, in fact, the reasonable thing is the room that's that has fewer people should take in the new prisoner. But the reason, the the, the rational reasons and arguments that both sides made for why the one that actually had more space made, you know, why this person should go in the room that's that already small, crowded. It was yeah. already overcrowded. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, Reasons or rationality, and I mean the fallenness of it is, you know, is is so obvious. Looking on, and actually, when you say what's helpful, helpful about acknowledging that, it was a lot of those kind of stories are what brought the author to become a Christian because it it made him see what sin he had never really recognized sin before, like guilty. It was that experience of of seeing incredible. Pervasiveness of sin, even the way it affected people's reason and rationality, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. for self-serving purposes. Mm -hmm. Give myself a few more inches rather than, mm -hmm. you know, suffer more. Yeah. Yeah. yeah in, in, in that direction, I think I've also thought a, a key thing is what is our own view of our own reason? Mm -hmm. What do we do with it? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, anybody can look at the Trinity. God is one and God is three and say, that's irrational. What are you doing when you do that? You're using your reason standing above everything the Bible says about who God is. Uh, and so you're, you're holding your reason by, through sin above what the word of God says. Or God is sovereign, God is loving, and evil is real. I mean, uh, like, like Lewis said there, no religion but the Christian religion makes that claim mm -hmm. because it's so obviously so easy to shoot down logically. <laughs> uh, by no one would make that you, up when you think you can put the whole world under your logic, yeah, and under, under your logical categories, under use Aristotle, use the law of non contradiction, and mm -hmm. so on, so it's clean and tidy. Uh, but you can put the Trinity under that, you can put all sorts of Christian truth under that if your idea of reason stands above. The word of God. Mm -hmm. So, so as, as Ben has said, uh, our reason we can do everything we we can sin with that just as effectively as we can sin with every other part of our mm -hmm. capability that we've been given. 
it kicks back at us on unexpected times, mm -hmm. uh, which is great. Excellent. But, but, but uh, anyway, so, mm -hmm. so, so it's, it's, it's there and, and can be in the service of sin brutally, mm -hmm. as in the thing Marty said, mm -hmm. uh, of just to, you can use it to prove absolute or to demonstrate to your own satisfaction absolute irrationality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe we should wind down. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in, uh, everybody who I can't see. Also, <laughs> yeah.